jewishaudio on kaban.org. This class is presented by Rabbi Mendel Kaplan, spiritual leader at Chabad Flamingo in Thornhill, Ontario. So today's class we're going to call Miracles and Trials. Miracles and Trials, are they the same or are they very different? Let's stop and think for a moment now. What's the two biggest complaints everybody has to God? First of all, why me? Right? Why are you giving me these trials and tribulations? And second of all, how come you don't make miracles for me? Right? How come in the old days there was miracles? How come we don't have miracles? And how come things are so difficult? Why is everything going wrong? Would you say that the two issues of trials and tribulations and miracles and wonders are connected or disconnected? Do they seem to be the same thing or do they seem to exist on opposite ends of the spectrum? What would you think? Connected. You think they're connected? You're just guessing that. Naturally, when you look at it, but I think they underlining they're connected. Naturally, they seem disconnected, though, right? Yeah. One is something that bolsters our faith. One is something in which Hashem is seemingly reaching out to us, and the other is something that challenges our faith. It seems Hashem is ignoring us. How come Hashem is not taking care of us? Why am I being challenged? Why do I have these trials? Whereas miracles, wow, God loves me. He's taking care of me. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. It shouldn't have been this way. And somehow everything fell into place. So the next two Mishnahs in chapter 5, Mishnah 3 and Mishnah 4, are going to deal with trials and tribulations and miracles. And interestingly, in Mishnah 4, they're actually put together in the same context, which seems to indicate that there may be some hidden connection here. Of course, to understand the connection between things like this, we have to have a deeper understanding of the subjects themselves. So let's first learn the Mishnah. Remember that chapter 5 is full of the number 10. Right? Everything goes by context of 10. We talked earlier in two Mishnahs about 10 generations. We talked about 10 utterances. So now we're talking about 10 tests or 10 trials. Now remember that the number 10 symbolizes wholesomeness, perfection. Just as we see in the world of mathematics or accounting, we always round things off to the closest 10, the closest decimal. So the number 10 spiritually represents perfection. Every single one of us has 10 soul powers or 10 dimensions in the neshama. And those 10 dimensions of the neshama, if somebody serves Hashem with all of them, we would say they serve Hashem completely, in perfection. If you serve Hashem only with your mind, so one studies a great deal of Torah and one understands a great deal about Torah. However, a person is not ready to feel anything, can't develop any emotion towards Yiddishkeit. Are they serving Hashem perfectly? Obviously not. If somebody is very, very fervorous and has a great amount of feeling, but they don't understand very much of anything, is that serving Hashem perfectly? Also not. So, to serve Hashem perfectly means to be involved and engaged in Yiddishkeit, in our service of God with all of our faculties. This is the idea of ten, meaning perfection. So, our father Abraham, the first Jew, experienced ten tests, ten trials and tribulations. And the Mishnah tells us, He stood up in them all. He stood through, he was able to withstand the various tests that he had. So that it would be made known. How beloved or how cherished was Avraham Avinu? Sounds kind of strange, no? If you love somebody, what would you do for them? You give them trials, right? Is that what you do to people you love? Or people. <laughs> huh? We don't challenge the people we love, right? We like to do things to the people we love. Okay, but here, Hashem did something deliberately. <laughs> okay, that's a good point. That's it. They for sure challenge us. Would that be a barometer of love to see how much we challenge? Okay, so let's first take a look at what were the ten challenges that Avraham Avinu had. And after we understand what the ten challenges were, then maybe we understand 
how the Mishnah says that this is for the purpose of letting it be known or of publicizing the love of Avraham Avinu. Okay, test number one. The Bartanura tells us the first challenge that Avraham Avinu had was called Ur Kazdin. Ur in Hebrew comes from the word Or. It's an idiom of the word light. What creates light most of the time? Fire. Fire creates light. Ur Kazdim was a fiery furnace. And the fiery furnace was built for the express purpose not of baking bread, but of barbecuing Avraham Avinu. Right? Nimrod, who was the king, was very, very frustrated with this man. And therefore he decided that he would punish him publicly, make a spectacle out of it so that everybody else would learn and they would know you don't set up with Nimrod. And when Nimrod tells you there's no God, there's no God. And when Nimrod tells you pagan worship is the only thing you're allowed to do outside of your own personal business, then that's what you engage in. And don't confuse people with these ideas of, of monotheism. Or a God that can't be seen or felt. So Avraham Avinu is thrown into a fiery furnace. In those days there was no television. There wasn't even a telegraph. How would you get the word around? If there was a woman. Okay. You said that. I didn't say that. <laughs> so the answer is you did something that was very striking. You built a large prop. Till this very day when somebody wants to advertise that something major is going on. You build something or you place something that's visible. You know those big blow-up things you put on top of a building sometimes? For a couple hundred dollars. Right? What does it do? Our neon sign. But that's... It took something simply that's large in size. It creates attention. So Nimrod didn't just kill Avraham Avinu. That would be very easy. Could have done it very discreetly. Instead, he spent the time building these giant ovens. So there was a tumult about it. There was construction workers and people who were contracted for raw material. So what are you building these ovens for? Oh, the ovens. The ovens are getting built. And everybody was talking about these ovens and the word got out that there was this guy, Avram Avinu, big troublemaker, that the ovens were being built so that he should be destroyed. He should be killed along with all of his ideas. So word got around. Everybody knew about these giant ovens and Avram Avinu was put at the test. He said, do you believe in God? He said, of course I believe in God. That's what I've been telling everybody. That's very nice. If you continue to say that, you are going to take a trip in the ovens. Do you still believe in God? What would most people do? So, well, in that case, now that you explained it to me, I don't really believe in God. There was no precedent. Nobody was used to giving their life away for anybody. In fact, the basic human instinct is survival. There are three basic human instincts that psychologists have identified. Number one is, the human mind is always looking for food, always looking for sustenance. Number two, the human mind is always looking for survival. And number three, the human mind is always looking for an appropriate partner with which to create, to procreate. These are the three basic things. And if you think about what drives people, it's usually one of those three. It's their hunger for one thing or another. It's the people's aggression, which in a very, very uh, primitive society would mean to kill actually to kill, but where people figuratively kill, destroy other people's careers or, or get other people out of their way because they have to advance. And finally, the, the thing that sells books and movies and gets everybody else interested in everything. That's, that's uh, the third basic instinct. So, Avraham Avinu's basic instinct as a human being is to survive. So, to survive, if the question is survive or not, to be or not to be, what should the answer be? To be. Every human being wants to be. It's not normal not to be. It's not normal not to survive. And Yiddishkeit doesn't really tell us that we shouldn't survive. On the contrary, generally speaking, Judaism says you should survive. I was thinking about it. The religion that we follow really dovetails into basic human instinct. It doesn't go against anything of basic human instinct. Fasting is not a mitzvah. On the contrary, a person who fasts and does more self-mortification is considered to be sinful. A person is supposed to satiate themselves. In fact, the Achalta, the Savata, the Torah talks about eating and being sated. And then it says, you should thank Hashem. And whenever we have a holiday, what should we do? We should eat. Eat well. Celebrate. Rejoice. Jews are always eating. Right? So, Yiddishkeit caters to a basic human need. Number two, nowhere in the Jewish Bible does it say turn the cheek. If somebody comes to kill you, Torah says, kill them first. Not only do you have permission to kill them first, you're supposed to kill them first. And a person who is being attacked and doesn't fight back is considered to be a sinner. Now, not everybody is capable of fighting back or people are, are, are terrified or frozen, don't have the wherewithal, the capability, but somebody would have the capability. 
and they're not afraid. And somebody comes to them and says, well, if you want to kill me, that's your problem. You can do as you please. I'm not going to do anything back to you. Which is actually what I've heard various people from the Eastern religion say. This goes against Yiddishkeit. Survival instinct, which is a basic human need, fits right into Yiddishkeit. And finally, marriage is the greatest mitzvah. And a person who doesn't marry is considered a great sinner. Whereas in other faiths, the holiest person is the person who is celibate. And the person who doesn't marry. So interestingly, Yiddishkeit does not go against the grain of humanity, but works with us. All we need to do is slightly modify. We just need to kind of mold our basic instincts so that they should serve Hashem. Not by denying ourselves outright, but only by harnessing or what's called by sublimating, by elevating, by making spiritual the things that we have basic needs of. And therefore, if it's a question of keeping the Shabbat or saving a life, what's the obvious thing we're supposed to do? Save a life. You see, all seven together, it's not a question. Eat pork or die? Eat pork, of course. 100%, it's not even a question. The Torah says, The mitzvahs were given for life. And therefore, if somebody is in danger of losing their life, in order to fulfill a mitzvah, so then we say, you need to keep yourself alive, healthy and well, so that the mitzvahs are done in a state of life. For Hasidim, we even take this a step further. Not only we should remain alive, it's not only a question of survival, but it's a question of flourishing. There's a very beautiful story that's told about Rebbe Tzernifka, who was the wife of the fourth Rebbe of Lubavitcher Bishmuel. When she was a young woman, at the age of 18, she became very ill. And the medical advice that she received was that she needed to eat right away in the morning. She should sustain herself. She shouldn't, be, shouldn't starve. She should eat very often. It doesn't have to be a lot, but to eat often. Now, in those days, it was unheard of to eat before davening. Pious people would daven first thing in the morning. Now, here she has this quandary. The doctor told her to eat first thing in the morning, but she wants to daven first. She was a very pious woman. So what did she do? She started getting up even earlier. Before day broke, so she could daven right away and then eat first thing in the morning. Mm-hmm. Now, word of this reached her father-in-law, the third Rebbe of Lubavitch, the Tzemach Tzedek. And he called the young lady and his daughter-in-law, and he said, how is your health? And she said, not so good. So what did the doctor say? So the doctor said, I should eat first thing in the morning. So he said with a smile, what are you doing? She says, well, I have to daven first. So therefore, I'm getting up now even earlier... And so not only was she not eating adequately, now she wasn't sleeping adequately either. So the Rebbe told her, not only are you not doing what the doctor said, but you're violating the advice. You're going against your grain. And he told her the following. He said that he heard from the Alter Rebbe, heard from the Maggid of Mizich. That about mitzvahs it says, V'chai bahem. You should live in them. V'chai bahem means that if we have a question of violating a mitzvah. We're staying alive. What should we do? We should stay alive. So therefore... The Torah's dictate, means live in them. Mitzvahs were given for life. So the Maggid said, it's not just a question of live in them. The Maggid said, it means that when you do a mitzvah, infuse it with life. You should live, you should be exuberant in them. So you're not doing a mitzvah half-heartedly, or half-awake. But you're doing a mitzvah full of life. And therefore, he said, it's better to eat in order to daven, than to daven in order to eat. So from this... This has become the Hasidic practice, which some communities, they say, oh, this is terrible, this is crazy. But if we're going to be davening later, we eat something. Not for the sake of having a meal. For the sake of davening. And if you do it for the sake of davening, then the Shulchan Aruch says it's permitted. If you're not well, if you need to eat in order to daven, then it's fine. Now, we daven at 7 o'clock in the morning, I don't need to eat at 7 o'clock in the morning. But on the Shabbos morning, for example, when we're davening at 9.15, we're not getting out of the Kiddush here until 12.30 or a quarter to one. If I wouldn't eat in the morning, I would be a mess. And therefore, it becomes a mitzvah to eat. Because the, the, the mitzvah is not going against davening. It's not a, con, in, in a contradiction to davening. It lends itself to davening. The eating allows for an appropriate davening. So the point is that keeping or staying alive is not just a question of survival, but to flourish, to be healthy. And to be healthy, thereby to be able to keep the mitzvahs. Yes? What's happening with the time of the Inquisition? When the Jews were forced either to... Convert or to be killed? No. At the time of the Inquisition, the Jews were not forced to convert or be killed. The Jews were forced to give away their money or to convert. And they chose to keep their money. And then they said, you know what? God will understand. We have beautiful homes and a lot of money and fancy positions. We will go underground with our Judaism. 
And that was wrong. The Muranos are not heroes from a Torah perspective. Now the fact is that many Muranos were burned at the stake. Many Muranos ultimately, when the big question came, are you Jewish or not? So then something inside kicked in and they said, yes, yes, I'm Jewish. And in the end, they had Mesirat Nefesh, the highest order of self-sacrifice. But what most people don't realize is that from the year 1398 until the year 1499, there was a hundred years of persecution in the Spanish-controlled provinces. And everybody who was in some way devout escaped. People left. That was many tragic stories. There were many, many shiploads of Jews that were hijacked by pirates. And pirates slaughtered them and stole their money. Uh, there were Jews that went to live in Portugal, that escaped Spain, went to live in Portugal, and only five years later to be given the edict of expulsion again. Uh, the, the Sephardic Holocaust took place in the course of a hundred years. Hundreds of thousands of Jews died from 1398 to 1499. And it was a very, very, very terrible period. But from 1499 onward, they said, this Spain is Juden reign. And therefore, anybody who's Jewish will be put to death. But they could have left. Interestingly enough, there is a historical theory that Christopher Columbus was Jewish. Mm-hmm. I want to. I'm sorry? We know that some of the cartographers were actually disciples of the Ramaz, the Misha Zakutero. I think that's how you pronounce it. Zakutero. And Misha Zakutero was a great Kabbalist, very, very famous Kabbalist and a famous astronomer. And people aboard that ship were Jewish. That we know for sure. But the interesting thing was that unlike voyages in that time of the that time of history, the night before was always reserved for family. It was the last night people would spend with their family. The voyage to the New World left the day the edict went into effect. And the night before, everybody was ordered to be on board the ship rather than be off the ship. Which historians say seems to indicate that either he was protecting Jews, because if they would have been home they would have been arrested, or that he may himself may have been Jewish. Or he may have had Jewish lineage, maybe he wasn't Jewish, but he had Jewish lineage. So certainly he had a relationship with the Jewish people, there's no question about that. Which is quite fascinating when you think about what North America and South America have become for Am Yisrael, really the haven. When Europe emptied out, it moved here, and that was initiated actually by a Jew. Maimonides? Maimonides escaped Spain earlier. And there was, he was originally a Spanish Jew, that's true. And he escaped North Africa. Many Jews went to North Africa. I mean, there was, the persecution in Spain just kept getting worse and worse and worse. Nachmanides also left. Nachmanides was forced to debate a very well-known apostate, a heretic, a Jewish heretic who became a Christian. And Nachmanides made mincemeat out of him. And, and therefore, it was decreed that he had to leave or they would kill him. They had no choice. Had to. The qu- what does it mean? Had to. had to. They had. They chose to stay, and subsequently had to. Nobody asked you to stay. They were not supposed to stay. And the reason that they stayed was because they had a big test, a test of wealth, test of affluence. You know, when you're you're a multimillionaire and you have powerful government positions and you're well known everywhere, to go and become a nobody is not easy. You can't even imagine what it's like to move to a new culture, especially today's day and age. We know about other cultures. You, you read about it in the newspaper. You see it on television. You surf the Internet. People have no idea what it was like. You're going to a place where here you're at the pinnacle, the zenith of your, of your career, and you're becoming a nobody, mm-hmm. a greener, a foreigner. Can't speak the language. Don't understand the people. Out of place. I mean, it's a, it's a very big challenge. And many people couldn't, they couldn't, just couldn't imagine it. So they stay where they were. Till this very day, there are... Spanish people that may have had a Jewish origin. And there, I mean, uh, there's a famous story told that in, in the 1960s there was a, a girl who ran away from her family and she was, you know, a little modern and she was biking all over Europe. Anyway, she meets up with this nice Spanish girl and they're biking together. And it comes Friday afternoon she says, Look, uh, I gotta stop for a couple of minutes. So the Spanish girl says, Why? So, well, you, we're not gonna understand, but like, whatever. My religion, we stop Friday afternoon to light some candles. I'm gonna light some candles, cause even though I'm a rebel, but I still wanna light some candles, so that's what I've been doing since I'm a little girl. Spanish goes, funny. My family has the same tradition. We also light candles on Friday night. But she had no idea why. Mm-hmm. Anyway, be that as it may, getting back to the challenge of giving away your life or adhering to Yiddishkeit, the truth is that for the vast majority of mitzvahs, we're supposed to stay alive. At any cost. With the exception of three mitzvahs. And the mitzvahs are, A, 
to change one's faith, to become an idolater. A. B. To take somebody else's life at the cost of somebody else's life. So one is not permitted to survive by killing somebody else. So if the Nazi would say, and they did this, you shoot so-and-so or I shoot you, you have no right to kill somebody else in order to stay alive. And the third is to commit sins of sexual impropriety. This is something which is not permitted even at the cost of one's life. Now, the Alter Rebbe says in Tanya that this is not a logical thing. Because it says that the mitzvah of Shabbat is greater than the sin of worshipping idols. So if the mitzvah of Shabbat is so important, why when it comes to Shabbat we say, oh, forget it, jump in the car, do whatever you have to do, save a life. When it comes all of a sudden to Avodah Zarah, to leaving one's faith, he said, no, that you can't do. Not because people are more comfortable violating Shabbat than they are going to church. That's not the reason. The reason is because that's what it says in the Torah. It's not really a logical thing. There is one exception to all of this, and that is in a time called Shas Hashmad. Shas Hashmad means when the Jewish people are being persecuted and the powers to be are trying to stamp out the Jewish faith. When they try to stamp out the Jewish faith, then we have absolutely no right to violate anything. Then we must stick to our guns. Even the smallest thing can result in the dismantling of our faith. And therefore the Gemara says, if it's a question of Arkas of the Misani, which means shoelaces, shoe straps. In times of the Gemara, the Jews wore black shoe straps, the Romans wore red shoe straps. It says, even to take off the black shoe straps, a person should sacrifice his life. And this is why in communist Russia, there was Yidin who stayed faithful by Torah and Mitzvahs for anything. If it costed a life. Both of my great-grandparents lost their life. Both my grandfather's father and my grandfather, my grandmother's father were both sent to Siberia and killed. One, because he made fabrengans in his house. Where does he have to make fabrengans in your house? He knew Hasidim have to have fabrengans. And everybody else afraid to make them in their house. So, he said, you make it in my house. Ultimately, somebody tattled, snitched on him, and he was sent to Siberia. A weak man, he didn't survive very long. My grandfather's father was a rabbi who kept teaching Torah. Secretly, kept the shul going. And they warned him, if you keep the shul going, we're going to arrest you. He says, I have to keep the shul going. And he was arrested. He was arrested on Stalin's birthday. It was Stalin's birthday gift. They used to do purges in honor of his birthday. And he was sent off to Siberia, where he continued to do what he was doing and try to schlep Yidin together. And eventually they sent a bunch of hooligans to beat him to death. Because they considered him a troublemaker. Now, where in the Torah does it say you have to make a minion? And that you risk your life for making a minion or for being a rabbi? The answer is Shas Hashmad. Shas Hashmad means a time of danger. Time of danger means you don't move one iota because one thing leads to another thing and eventually anybody who didn't stay steadfast became totally lost in communist Russia. There was nothing left. So we have these ideas where a Jew is asked to give his life but it's made very clear in the Torah that this is an illogical thing. It's not something that's rational. It's not a rational decision. It doesn't really make sense. Our faith was one that celebrates life, not death. Other faiths celebrate death or glorify death. We do not glorify death. We glorify life. Life is the holiest, the most wonderful thing. So here, Avram Avinu has no precedent. Nobody in the world has ever seen somebody give his life for something else. It goes against the basic human instincts. And yet, when Avram Avinu is asked the big question, publicly, he declares his faith in Hashem. Because he senses that this is either going to destroy faith in Hashem forever, or that his self-sacrifice will make a point somebody's ready to give his life away. Avraham Avinu didn't know he was getting saved. In fact, somebody cannot be ready for self-sacrifice and say, well, I'm going to do it, but I know God's going to make a miracle for me. So therefore, I'm ready, since miracles are happening anyway. Avraham Avinu had no such inklings. He had no such designs. There was no preconditions. He said, I'm ready to give my life. And Nimrod threw him into the fiery furnace. Miraculously, Avraham emerged unscathed. Now, what happened after was, Avraham Avinu had a brother. And the brother was kind of, kind of involved. He was always there, yeah, he like, he supported his brother. So when they asked Horon, Avram's brother, said, do you believe? He said, uh, I don't know, what is Avram doing? Avram said, I believe. Avram gets thrown into the fire, a miracle happens. So he said, Horon, you believe? He said, sure, I believe, of course. I mean, uh, miracles happen, of course I believe. And Horon, unfortunately, did not survive. That's why there is love. I'm sorry? That's why Avram adopted Lot. That's right, Lot was her and son, yes. So this is Avram Avinu's first big test. And Avram Avinu emerges unscathed, still standing. Now, I have to tell you that there are different opinions in the, in the biblical commentators what exactly were the ten tests of Avram Avinu. 
Avram had many trials and tribulations. The question is, what are the official ten? So it really was more than ten tests. But what are the ten major ones? Nachmanonis and Rashi have a dispute. But I'm going to follow today the interpretation of the Bartanura. Because we're learning Mishnah. And the Bartanura is the foremost commentator of Mishnah. So this is the first thing. He says that was the first great test. The second great test was Lech Lecha. Why was Lech Lecha such a test? Well, we talked earlier about the idea of leaving your home. Leaving everything that you're comfortable with. But the Rebbe once explained it went a step further. Abraham of Vino's life was dedicated to what? Teaching, spreading the word, making a difference. Abraham of Vino has spent the last 75 years of his life, or at least the last 72 years of his life, either developing ideas or reaching out to others. At the age of 48, the measure says Abraham Avinu perfected the whole theory of monotheism, this idea of faith. So certainly from the age of 48 to 75, he was practicing very, very strongly, for almost 30 years. And he was very successful. For going into the fire and coming out didn't weaken his cause. Right? Made him into a champion. He became a hero. So Avraham Avinu was very successful. And now God comes along and says, I want you to leave. So what would you do? So, listen, God, I don't mind leaving, but do you realize, have you been watching? Do you know how successful I've been here? I'm going to go to a place where I don't speak the language. I don't know the way people's minds work. I can't create any marketing schemes because it's a whole new set of reality. Like, I'm not going to be successful. Hey, God, why would you want to send your star salesman away to a different division of the company? I'm doing well here. That's Avram's natural reaction, or at least it should be. What does Avram do? He goes. It doesn't make sense. God, for your sake it doesn't make sense. Forget me. For you it doesn't work. Avram doesn't ask any questions. He picks himself up and goes. And I want to tell you something very interesting. When you on your own volition decide to do something, it's one thing. When somebody tells you to do something, oh, it's a lot harder. It's a lot of, when you don't have to do it and you do it, you're a hero. When somebody makes you do it, the whole gishmak is lost. When I was a little boy, I wanted to fast so badly. Everybody was fasting, you know, the fast days. I wanted to fast too. When I was 11 years old, I fasted on Tisha B'av. And it was like such an exciting thing for me. I was going to do it. And my father was putting food under my nose and trying to force me to eat. I said, no, no, I'm not going to eat. I'm stubborn, I'm an action, I'm not going to eat. I remember how hungry I was, but I was so happy to do it. I was like so proud of myself. And guess what? Two years later, when I was a bar mitzvah boy, like, it wasn't so much fun anymore. <laughs> it wasn't like I didn't achieve anything. I wasn't fighting with anybody. You know, nobody was putting food under my nose. It should have been easier. It got that much harder. Why? Why? Because to do it on your own is one thing. When somebody forces you to do it, it's a whole different kettle of fish. It's very difficult. So Avraham Avinu, when he had his own volition, when he was the hero, and Nimrod says, I'm going to throw you in a fiery furnace. And Avraham says, you do whatever you want. I'm not budging. That's one thing. But when Avraham Avinu said, God says, Avraham, leave. That's one second. I call the shots here. I'm going to, do, I'm going to be the hero. God says, no, no, no. I'm, not, I'm telling you to leave. It becomes infinitely more difficult. And as I talked about a couple of weeks ago on show, this is why Judaism, the story of Avraham Avinu, begins with Lech Lecha. Because Judaism is not about us deciding what we want to do. Or us being heroes and making our own sacrifices. Rather, listening to what Hashem wants. And that's very difficult. Nobody likes to be told what to do. Certainly not to be forced into things. So Lech Lecha is the second big test. Avraham Avinu doesn't bat an eyelash. He gathers everybody together. He has a fire sale. Sells everything at discount prices. His wealth is diminished. Doesn't ask questions. He heads out west. Right? Well, a lot of Jews did that, right? Especially in the United States. They head out west. Avram heads out west. And he comes to Eretz Yisrael. The third test is, Avram Avinu arrives in a strange land. Nobody did that in those days. Nobody like moved from one place to another. What, what are you doing here? Strange clothes, strange language, strange dialect. What is this guy doing here? So he attracted attention. In fact, they gave him a name. Ivri. Ivri. You know what Ivri means? Aver. Comes from the other side. He was from the far side. You know, like, where did he come from? Well, he came from the other side of the river. In other words, what was Avraham Avinu called? An alien. A foreigner. We have been stamped with the name foreigner ever since when? The first Jew already was called a foreigner. The other side of the Euphrates. Mesopotamia. The ancient Mesopotamia. I guess that would be today's modern day Iraq. Oh, okay, that's what you're saying. 
So the Euphrates, Avram crossed the Euphrates, he's an alien. Everybody starts talking about this guy Avram. What is this strange dude doing? This strange alien. Why is he in our country? What does he want from us? Everybody's suspicious of him. And guess what happens? When he comes, all of a sudden the rain stops. All of a sudden, the agriculture dries up. Imagine what everybody said. It's the Jew. The Jew messed up the economy. Let's get this guy out of here. Avram should say, God, you told me to come here. Now everybody hates me. Like, what's the purpose? And not only that, but God put Avram in a circumstance where he had to leave. You told me to come. I did everything, and now I have to leave? And I'm going down into Egypt. You know why Egypt doesn't suffer from droughts? Because Egypt is irrigated by the Nile River. Whereas the country of Eretz Yisrael needs rain. This is interestingly uh, the contrast that's always drawn between Eretz Yisrael and Eretz Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim represents hedonism. Mitzrayim represents a person being fixated on self. Yes. And Mitzrayim represents idol worship. What is an idol ultimately? I can worship whatever I can make, whatever I can see, whatever makes sense to me. That which is beyond my imagination, beyond my orbit, I cannot worship that, I cannot relate to that. Eretz Yisrael, of course, represents the idea of rain. Where does rain come from? The heavens, so where are Jews always looking? To the heavens. Esa Enai, I raise up my eyes. Eretz Yisrael is a place that's supposed to make you believe. Mitzrayim naturally is a place conducive to idolatry, pagan worship, and so on and so forth. Anyway, Avraham Avinu has to go down into Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim is known to be a very, very immoral place. So immoral that Avraham Avinu is afraid for his life. And that's, no questions asked. The fourth test, everything goes wrong for Avraham. This big hero who managed to overcome everything, listens to God, comes to Israel, and now he's starving. Goes down to Mitzrayim, and what happens when he comes to Mitzrayim? They take his wife away. They don't just want her, they take her. And only by the grace of God, because he said, it's his sister, they didn't kill him. Had he said, it was my wife, they said, your wife? Very nice, please come for a little visit over here. Sit in this chair, keep your head, keep your neck up, we're going to give you a little haircut now. And Avram Avinu would be finished off. Because in those days, it's very interesting... The people were careful when it came to promiscuity. Nobody would take somebody else's wife. It's interesting, in many of the ancient cultures, this was something which was paramount. They would murder, they would steal, no problem. But take somebody's wife? No, that's, you don't go over there. And this is after the flood, this was the one thing that they maintained. Up until the time of Dina. When Dina was abducted, that's when the whole world became, the, all of the, all the, the concept of promiscuity then promulgated everywhere. And that's why it was such a, a terrible event. That it should happen with a Jewish girl, that all of the terrible promiscuity started, there was a Jewish girl involved. That's why Shimon Alevi reacted so vociferously, so violently. So anyway, Abraham Avinu, he knows that murder, that's not even a problem. In this country, they kill you in two minutes. So he had no choice. He had to say, it's my sister. Now, when you pick a, a, a casual or careless reading of the scripture, it sounds like Abraham is selling his wife. He's going to come in there. And he's going to say, yeah, it's my sister, now give me a gift. Somebody gave me a tape years ago of a radio program where they were going to re-examine the Bible. So they got a poet, a playwright, an accountant, a lawyer, a doctor, all these professionals with you know, this wonderful perspective. And they were going to re-examine, of course, they're all Jewish, and their idea is to read into the Bible to see how debaucherous and terrible the Bible really is. And the first story they started with, the story of Avram Avinu. And what's the first lesson? Avram was ready to sell his wife for a dollar. That's the lesson they drew from it. Now if they would bother to read the commentaries or the oral tradition that came along, they would find out very simply that the reason Avram says, say you're my sister so they give me gifts, is because Avram Avinu doesn't want to be murdered. He figures this way they'll keep trying to curry favor with him. And they'll keep trying to give him gifts. He'll refuse and back and forth. In the meantime, they'll survive. They'll, they'll, they'll get by. And then they'll escape as soon as they can. Avraham Avinu didn't imagine that they could get a king involved. But Pharaoh got involved. Pharaoh got, he doesn't have any questions here. Pharaoh's people arrived and, and she was gone. Now, Avraham is going to think, this is crazy. This doesn't make any sense. I listened to everything God said and where has it landed me up? In Egypt, without my wife, what happened? Miracles happened. And Avraham Avinu leaves Mitzrayim a short while later and he comes back a very wealthy man. So interestingly, all the tests resulted ultimately in Avram's success. It all worked out for the best. 
when you look back in hindsight, Avram came to Eretz Yisrael, he had no way to survive, no way to make any money, he had everything, everybody else around him was doing very well. Instead, Hashem made everybody poor, they go down into Mitzrayim, who is the only wealthy one coming back? Avraham Avinu, and that happens because they take his wife. So now Avraham Avinu is in Eretz Yisrael, all of a sudden the alien is not the alien pauper, he's not a UFO, instead he's looked up to now. He becomes a prince amongst them. Everybody needs favors from him. So in retrospect, God knew exactly what he was doing. A perfect plan. But for Avram at that time, was a great test. And he would have been inclined to say, Gott Himmel, please, stop giving so nice to me. What are you doing? This doesn't make any sense. The next test goes, fast forwards, a long time later, Avram Avinu finds out that Lot is abducted by the superpower the axis of evil and Avram has no choice but to go to war against them because they want to show that Avram is not an untouchable and we'll take his nephew and we'll destroy him we'll violate him we'll kill him and Avram Avinu is powerless so Avram Avinu goes to fight for his nephew and miraculously a handful of people destroy mighty armies Avram Avinu goes to God what do you want from me? it's impossible it's impossible it was impossible somehow Avram survives anyway then we have Avram Avinu gets the covenant, which we read in last week's Parsha. God tells him, Avram Avinu, I want you to know, your children that I told you about, they're going to become slaves. They're going to be beaten. They're going to be aliens. And then eventually they're going to come back to Eretz Yisrael. What would you do with such good news? Say, God, do you have to do it that way? I mean, if it's my children that you love me, maybe we should find a nice way to do this. Why do they have to be aliens and slaves and beaten? Avram doesn't ask any questions. He understands that the reason that Jews go into Gullus ultimately is for their best. Even though he doesn't see it. Number seven is, Avram is 99 years old. And God gives him a little bit of piece of news. Hi Avram Avinu, how are you feeling today? Oh great, okay. You know there's that foreskin you have, I want you to cut it off. <laughs> what? British Lelum, couldn't you have told me about this 40 years ago? I have to wait till I was 99 years old. Doesn't ask any questions. And not only that, I want you to convince everybody in your home to do the same thing. And your 13-year-old wild Vilichaya son Yishmael. This is a command. No questions. Avram Avinu takes care of everything. Challenging. In the end, it works out. Avram Avinu, after the Brismila, merits to have Yitzchak, father's a son. Test number eight says the Bartanura is Avram Avinu successful, overcomes everything, and now. Right after God promises everything is going to be great, Sarah is abducted again. A different king. It all works out. Avram doesn't question. Number nine was a very, very personal test for Avram. Sarah has a child named Yitzchak. Yitzchak is, trying, is supposed to be raised now to be the crown prince. The Sion, the ancestor of the Jewish people. Avram has another son whose name is Yishmael. He's Abdul Bechaya. He doesn't like Yitzchak. Because he finds that he's being displaced by this little kid. He's 13 years older. 14 years older. So Yishmael starts trying to influence Yitzchak to dirty his mind and maybe to kill him. Sarah says, it's not going to work. I can't live in this house and raise a Jewish child with a Vildechaya living in the same, same house. It can't work. She tells him, out he goes. Out Hugger goes. We have a job here. Avram says, I can't do that. Me Avra? Mr. Mr. Do-it-all? Mr. Mr. Kindness? Mr. Good? How could I do that? How will it look? What will everybody say? And, and how could I bring myself to do such a thing? And Hashem says, Avram Avinu. He says, yeah. Your wife is right. You imagine what kind of test this is? A guy like Avram has to listen to his wife. He has to find out that she's right. And he has to go against his grain. doesn't ask. It says, Vayeda. He was very hard for him. But this is the only thing it says that was very hard for Avram. It aggravated him greatly. But he didn't ask questions. The next morning he did it. And finally, of course, the tenth test, which we just read about two days ago in Shul, the Akedah. Where Yitzhak is raised up on the Akedah and doesn't ask any questions. And it doesn't happen overnight. It was three days of traveling. And Avram Avinu did exactly what Hashem told him. So all of these tests, what was the purpose of all these tests? At the end of all these tests, how does Avram emerge? Battered, broken, beaten? He becomes stronger. He emerges triumphant. He emerges spiritually perfected. So what's the purpose of the test then? Just take a look at timeline of Ramavino's life. What's the purpose of the test? Brings that the best. The word Nisayon, which means a test or an obstacle, 
comes from the same Hebrew word as Nes. What does Nes mean? Nes means miracle. What else does Nes mean? Nes in biblical Hebrew means a flag. A flag, a banner. What is the purpose of a flag or a banner? Show victory. Show victory. Identifying mark. You raise the flag up. Who raised Avraham Avinu's flag? The Nisayon raised his nest. The banner of Avraham was raised through the challenges. So you see that although it looked like terrible things, ultimately Avraham Avinu's trials and tribulations, his tests, didn't leave him cut and bruised, but instead left him elevated and perfected. So when Hashem gives us a test, the test looks like it's going to knock us down. And what's our trick? To keep standing up. It says when Avraham Avinu was on his way to the Akedah, all kinds of crazy things were going on around him. There was a flash flood, which is very common in that part of the world. And the wadi suddenly filled up with water. And Avraham Avinu just kept moving. He should have freaked out. I'm going to do a God once now, a flash flood. And the water reached his nostrils. And just as he was about to drown, the water disappeared. And then there was a brush fire. Raging fires around him. Avraham Avinu kept going. He knew that this is a challenge. You know, it's a test. So if you know you're doing the right thing and a challenge all of a sudden presents itself, should it deter you? Does it mean, Oy vey, I can't deal with this. If I'm getting a challenge, it means God doesn't want me to do this. Or does it mean, I have inner strength. I have the ability to overcome this challenge and ultimately I will emerge from this challenge unscathed. Not only will I emerge unscathed, I will emerge strengthened. That's the Jewish perspective of challenges. So when the Torah talks about an Nisayon, the Torah is telling us that it's only through these trials and tribulations that we are able to achieve greatness. Take a look at most of the heroes in history. Are the heroes the people who had perfect situations or imperfect situations? Just take a look at the heroes. Imperfect. Challenged. Which, I mean, like, ideally the challenged person is dealing with challenges. He doesn't have time to be a hero. Because when somebody is challenged and yet overcomes, somehow commands a great amount of respect. To do something which is logical, normal, whatever, all right, no, so what? A lame example, and don't quote me on it. Donald Trump got more respected before his disaster or after his disaster. Everybody predicted Donald Trump was finished. His empire was over. And the guy came out of that and managed to rebuild his empire. Did he lose respect by it or gain respect by it? He gained People learn from their mistakes. And somebody who never had a real challenge, or somebody who never lost it before rebuilding it, say, well, big deal. So they followed the charted course. Greatness is achieved by going beyond. What was Roosevelt? He was a big mamzer. He, he did not allow the Americans to help during the Holocaust. He was partially guilty for, 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 for Jews that were killed. But why was he looked up to so by Americans? Despite the fact that he was in a wheelchair, or because of the fact that he was in a wheelchair? Think about it. People were so impressed with a person who was challenged, physically challenged, and yet didn't allow those challenges to stand in his way. That earned him respect amongst people. But I was told that most people didn't realize he was wheelchair-bound because there was, it was today before TV, speaking on the radio, you didn't see him, and he was sitting when they saw him in public. That's probably true. I don't know if a president could win an election in today's day and age where they scrutinize the way you walk and the color of your suit. I wonder. You know, Abraham Lincoln definitely wouldn't win an election in America today. His wife was nuts, and he was ugly as sin. I mean, like, uh, he just wouldn't win today. Like, uh, right? Uh, today he had a guy like John Edwards who has nothing but uh, a smart mouth and good looks. I mean, like, what, what else do you have to him? That's all. You know, because he had a lot of hair in his head. I mean, like, uh, but he had, that's the only reason he was chosen. Or, or, or Dan Quayle, I mean, even less. So, so uh, today's politics have become changed. We live in a very superficial world. Right? Uh, a, a first lady like uh, Teresa Hines give people like the, the, the cooties. They were freaking out. That's why I try to keep her in a box. You know, like Avram Avinu. He put her in a box. I said, where is she? She's in the box. Don't look. You know, like a, he tried to hide her as best he could. Last few weeks, nobody heard a word from her. Every time she opened the mouth, said, go blow it or something. You know, like a, you shove it. So, I mean, like, Abraham Lincoln's wife was Meshuggah. We know her. Married Todd Lewis. Her name is she was Cuckoo. I mean, like a... I'm an American, I'm sorry. So, <laughs> growing up as a young boy in the United States of America, we were taught about president. <laughs> so one of the things in American history was that Abraham Lincoln's wife, whose name was Mary Todd Lewis? Lincoln. Mary Todd Lincoln was a little bit off the walls. 
and she would say crazy things and do crazy things. I mean, I think she was manic. Uh -huh. So I'm wondering today if a person like that could win an election with a wife who was manic. Mm -hmm. My guess is he couldn't. No. Right? So could Roosevelt win an election in today's artificial world? Mm -hmm. Maybe not. Maybe not. But the fact that he was in a wheelchair wasn't a secret. He didn't try to hide it. You know, people were aware of it. It wasn't in their face all the time. But the truth is that it created respect, mm -hmm. not a lack of respect. There's a there's a there's a uh, council person in the city of Richmond Hill named Danny Wheeler. He's a wonderful guy who's actually cha physically challenged in a wheelchair. He can't even shake your hand, and he wins every election because people are incredibly impressed by this guy. He doesn't allow those challenges to bring him down. It takes twice as much time for him to use the washroom. It takes twice as much time for him to dial up to make a phone call. He has every reason not to succeed. But people are impressed when somebody's challenged. Because the truth is that brings out inner greatness. What's the purpose of a challenge? Nisayon, Hasidus says, or Nisi, to raise my flag, raise my banner. It doesn't go against me ultimately, but when I'm challenged, it makes it look better. It makes me emerge stronger. But you have to realize that's only in retrospect. Hindsight is 2020. When you're in the middle of a challenge, you can't see the forest for the trees. All you do is scream, this is impossible, I can't take it. And that's why it's a challenge. If we could see the result of the challenge, it wouldn't be a challenge. It wouldn't accomplish what the challenge accomplishes. It's only because we go through those challenges and yet persevere that we're able to develop in a positive way. Yes. Did you uh, hear or read that uh, Roosevelt had two Jewish roots? So did Yashka, big deal. What does it mean? <laughs> <laughs> they, they trace the fact that he came from Dana, Ashkenazi Jewish roots. Jewish roots don't mean anything to me. I mean, it doesn't impress me. And, and Some of our worst enemies came from Jewish roots. So what? The fact is that many, many people tried to get into the Oval Office during the Holocaust and, and try to stop the train transports that were going to concentration camps. And he refused to listen to this. That's a fact. It's documented. Mm -hmm. There was a, a hero, a Rosh Hashiva rabbi named Michal Weissmandel, who came to the United States. He himself later perished in a death camp. He came to the United States with maps. He had maps of the tracks to Auschwitz, which the United States Army could so easily have bombed. They could have bombed him every two days. And the, the trains simply wouldn't have been able to get there. Mm -hmm. He could have stopped the infrastructure of Holocaust in, in the tracks. And they didn't. Because he was anti-Semitic, or he was involved, or well, not when he get involved. When people are dying, is what was Churchill's stance on the whole thing? Did he try? I don't know. Because he was a real hero. Uh, yeah, he was. I don't know. I don't. I don't think Churchill was a, had the ability to do things like that. And I, I don't know. London was being bombed. So I don't know that Churchill was ever. Because I never heard anything like that. Mm -hmm. But I did hear. I did read documented sources where it would talk about them being I, I read one documentary source I don't remember the name of the person somebody actually had a, uh, a 10 minute audience in the Oval Office and Roosevelt pulled out a, a picture of a cow and said oh this is a cow born in the kibbutz and his name is Roosevelt and, and joked and laughed and just kept changing the subject and then said oh time's up sorry you're, 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 you know you're out well didn't he also turn a boatload of Jews away? I think more than one yeah. But I mean, he wasn't. The, the British were mu much more guilty of that. I'm just, I'm just saying that the fact. I'm not trying. What, what I guess I want to say is, don't quote me that Roosevelt was a hero. <laughs> not my hero. I don't look up to him. I think that he's not the Semite. A friend of, of Joe Kennedy was a, a, a very famous Nazi sympathizer. What I'm trying to say is that forget about who he was or what he did. I'm just saying the fact that he was handicapped or challenged mm -hmm. didn't make for less, but made for more. You could learn a lesson from everything. Mm -hmm. And that's like the idea of a, of a challenge. So you say, God, if you wouldn't challenge me, I'd be more successful. Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe not. Now, sometimes when we get challenged, no, so we get challenged. We have no choice. That's what they say, they say in Israel. Mm -hmm. What do you want us to do? Pick us and pick us, uh, ourselves up and leave. Where are we going? But the greatest challenge sometimes is the challenge of affluence. When they kill you with love. So we had people who were ready to fight to get into shul. When the shul was wide open, nobody's coming. Mm -hmm. What happened? Same people who were fighting. The same people in Russia, they used to go at the peril of their life. Simchas Torah, there would be huge demonstrations in Moscow and in Leningrad and all major centers. Everybody would come and dance with the Torah. That's speak to people who were in Russia in the 70s. Mamash at the risk of life, KGB agents milling around everywhere. They can arrest thousands of people in one night because they went out one night, so they overlooked it. But there was danger to it. And all those famous refuseniks, when they came out to freedom, very few of them were still fighting. What happened? Think about it.
about it. What happened? How come those Jews who were going at the peril of their life in 1970, in 2004, aren't coming here to Simchas Torah? Because when we're not challenged, all of a sudden, oh, it's available, so I'll go tomorrow. I'll go next week. I don't have to go now. But that doesn't mean it isn't a challenge. It's just a different kind of challenge. And sometimes it's easier when somebody challenges you because you have no choice. But when you have to challenge yourself and you have to find the strength inside to overcome the inner challenges, that could be even more difficult. The Rebbe a number of times talked about the, the virtue of American Jews. I mean American, Canadian, North American, Jews who live in freedom. In fact, the last time the Rebbe distributed a talk, a rumination of his, was a mimer called Vatit Tzava. And the Rebbe makes this point. He says that the Maila, the supreme virtue of our generation, versus the generation that preceded us, who had incredible sacrifice. People who gave their lives for Yiddishkeit, all over Europe. And yet, those same people, when they came here to these shores, suddenly were not ready for the same kind of sacrifice. And the Rebbe believed that it was harder to be challenged from inside, or to challenge yourself. In the subsequent to the Holocaust, there was a frenzy cha- uh, rebuilding. Everybody was challenged. Will the Jewish people survive or not? And everybody's laid back. We survived. We overcame. We built. People are not as excited. You don't see that frenzy energy anymore. And that's the real challenge. The challenge is not when you lose. When you lose and then anyway overcome, that's a natural challenge. The challenge is when you just have to keep living. You have to keep challenging. Look at the state of Israel in 1948. The challenge, the fervor, the patriotism was unbelievable. In 2004, you don't have this. What happened? Decadent. People are worn down. They don't care anymore. They're not challenged in the same way. So this is the Torah way to look at challenges. Not as a negative thing, but rather challenges are Hashem's way of bringing out the best within us. Just like that 10-speed bike, keep ratcheting up, the pressure is higher, you get better exercise, bike moves faster. Right? The bicycle moves by pressure. Whether it's your treadmill or whatever kind of exercise you're doing, the way the, pr- the premise is, the harder it is, the harder I'm going to work, the more effective it's going to be. This is the idea of Nisayun. Now, Merz Hashem, next time we meet, we'll talk about the Soyon versus Nase. How is miracle one and the same? Miracle would seem to be the very opposite. Right? A miracle is simple thing. God is doing it for you. It's not a challenge. It would seem to be a weakness. So, Merz Hashem, next time we meet, we'll talk about that a minute.